Let's humble our hearts before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you at this special time, the weekly Sabbath, when we can lay down the labors of the world and focus entirely on you. We look forward to your Sabbath day, enforced rest, that we can now focus our attentions on your word to learn more about you, and so that we might become better servants and better strivers as we seek that kingdom, as we go forward in this world, as a, as a light, as a witness to many. We pray, Almighty Yahweh, that you'll guide us each day, keep us always in the hollow of your hand and always walking in the footsteps of Yahshua. We thank you for your word, for your son, and the truth you have given. This prayer we ask in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. And you may be seated. You know, we on this walk, this journey, where Yahshua's footsteps become our footsteps, his obedience becomes ours, we often get the argument when you talk about following in his ways that, well, that's, those laws are Old Testament. They're Old Testament. We're a New Testament church now, and that's all done away. You know, as we see the decline of religion and religious conviction in America, we hear the cry of those who say, we really need a good old-fashioned revival to wake up the senses, the masses. You know, it's not a bad idea. Down through history, these revivals got people back on the right track. But it would probably take a lot more than some old-fashioned revival in this day and age. It's probably going to take some old-fashioned tribulation to soften the hearts of those who would attack religion, threaten to take away religious freedoms, tax exemptions, and even Bibles. We're hearing more and more of that coming down the pike, aren't we? More of this kind of talk is becoming part of the general conversation. Prophetic fulfillment of this is on the horizon as well. We know we're going to see this eventually. And that's why we at YRM have a special urgency about getting the word out now while we can, while the window of opportunity is open. Because there's going to be a time when all that's going to be shut. And then we're going to be done. And then the record of what we did here and now will be there for all eternity. And what we did here and how we tried to reach out with Yahweh's word, when very few people really care, is going to be on us and how we tried to do Yahweh's will. Hopefully, we'll be added to the book of Acts of the apostles, their actions written down for eternity. You know, the Bible reveals, I think, that uh, as you look at all the other books, they all have a closing, but Acts does not. Acts kind of ends abruptly, like there's more. There's more going into it. There have been times in history when interest in the Bible, and especially Bible prophecy, was reawakened in a massive way. One of the times was in the mid-1800s, especially along the eastern seaboard and also in the Midwest. It was known as the Second Great Awakening, emerging partly as a 
backlash against the spread of liberalism, a little bit like our day, isn't it? And partly in response to calls for a religion that's more accessible to the masses, to the common man. And it was at this time that many new denominations sprouted out too, sprouted up, like Mormonism, Christian Science, Seventh-day Adventism. Look up the history. Religious fervor was rampant. Many were heavily into the second coming of Yahshua the Messiah, and they thought it was imminent. So in 1843, there was a bunch of people sitting out on on, uh, hay bales waiting for Yahshua to return. They'd sold everything, and now they're waiting to be taken up into the heavens. They were called the Millerites. And from them, we get the CFG Seventh Day and also, tracing it back, the Sacred Name Movement had its origins basically in that era. New teachings materialized as well. It was in the 1800s that the rapture belief was launched, as well as the charismatic tongue-speaking movement at that time. An intense interest in Yasha's return also gave rise to the belief in what has been called dispensationalism. And my focus today is on that. One of the key teachings behind the idea that the Bible is broken into two parts. One for Israel, one for us. Old Testament for Israel only, New Testament for us. The modern, quote, church. A man named John Nelson Darby, a Plymouth Brethren minister, is recognized as developing this system and uh, this biblical system of interpretation that distinguishes between Yahweh's program for Israel and his dealings with the assembly now. In other words, it says that there are two ways to salvation. The ways for Israel and the ways in the New Testament. Their basic premise is uh, basically a little formula ignoring certain biblical teachings, certain biblical uh, beliefs that do not apply to us. One way of truth for Israel and the other for us. Now, this idea that there's a difference did not take full flight, really, until 1848 when Israel became a state, a nation again. After all, I mean, how can you involve Israel when Israel ain't there? So when Israel became a state, this really kind of took off. And this heresy has done more to damage the truth than anything in recent memory. It separates separates out obedience to Yahweh today, where we're not in the dispensation of obedience, but we're in the dispensation of grace. Of course, this whole idea began way back in the Reformation with Martin Luther and and Calvin and some of the others. Darby was also strong in the rapture teaching, which taught that Yahshua could return at any moment by 1833, his brand of interpretation was fully formed into seven dispensations. I don't know how he, where he got these things, but he just sat down, I guess, one day and started looking at the Bible anciently and trying to figure out what dispensations were taking place at the time. What they believe is that the Bible teaches a unique place for Israel different from what's promised the assembly today. 
Basically, Israel is left with a physical land. That's their promise. You know, they were given a physical land in the Old Testament. That's also going to be their reward in the kingdom, a physical land. And the church, quote, quote, unquote, gets a heavenly blessing, which I guess is uh, certainly greater. The dispensation teaching gave birth to so many man-made doctrines that have really solidified into core theology today. So many resulted from this. They led to the eternal security teaching. The one big, huge gulf many believe exists between two incompatible teachings, law and grace. Law and grace. Incompatible, they say. And you guessed it. Israel was under the condemnation of the law, but the church enjoys grace. Grace in the Old Testament. They never thought of that. If you got the Restoration Study Bible, the latest, uh, third edition, in the middle, well, between the Testaments, we have that chart. Shows grace operating in the Old Testament. Wonder why they didn't think of that. Look it up in Genesis, Exodus. Uh, It's in the Psalms. It's in Isaiah. But dispensationalism goes beyond even all of that. It just keeps growing and growing and growing like a tumor of cancer. Not only was there a distinction between the assembly and Israel, but there was also a distinction between the new covenant assembly and the covenant of Israel. And the difference between the kingdom of Yahweh and the the kingdom of heaven. They even made that a distinction. I don't know what the difference is, but they they found one. And then a distinction of the teachings of Yahshua for this age and what he taught for the millennial age. There's another distinction. They make mincemeat of the word, basically categorizing, chopping up, clipping this, clipping that out, moving this over. Until the Bible is no longer a unit. It's a bunch of pieces stuck together. You know, they say that's what the Koran is. We had that brother who had studied the Koran and actually was a, a practicing Muslim one time. And he said, it's, it's, you can prove anything by it because it's indistinctive. It's like a bunch of paste, uh, a big paste-up thing where you clip this, clip that, stick it all together, and you can make it say whatever you want it to say. There's no consistency. There's no coherency. There's no beginning and end. There's no theme. It's just thrown together. That's kind of what dispensation leaves us with. You know, we've all fallen into, as you say, you're daydreaming. You, uh, what they call the stream of consciousness, where your mind just goes, goes from one thing to another, and you're just kind of daydreaming, and you, you, you start thinking various things, one thing after another, And you let your mind wander. Dispensationalism teaches something like that. Along comes a man named C.I. Schofield, and his Schofield Reference Bible became the greatest single factor that taught this belief. So it uh, it gained its notoriety that way. Dispensationalism now uh, dominates basically the American evangelical scene. That's what they all believe. They believe in a dispensation of different things so that you can pass off 
one part of the Bible because you're not in that dispensation. So you got the Baptists, you've got Pentecostals, charismatic groups all falling for this. Probably the most significant of its teachings is the uh, is it seeks to address what many see as opposing teachings between Old Testament and New Testament. They, they see them incompatible. Where we're bringing it back to the way the Bible was meant to be. One unit. And how the distinctive parts fit together and not separate. Restoring. That's what we call restoration. Restoring the truth. So they have... The dispensation of innocence, that's prior to Adam's fall. The dispensation of conscience, which is the time between Adam and Noah. Dispensation of government from Noah to Abraham. Uh, of patriarchal, patriarchal rule, Abraham to Moses. Of the Mosaic law, Moses to the Messiah. Of grace, that's the current assembly. And of a literal earthly 1,000 year Millennial kingdom, that's part of another dispensation, which has yet come to pass. Each dispensation is said to represent a different way of which Yahweh deals with man. Schofield says, quote, these periods are marked off in scripture by some change in Yahweh's method of dealing with mankind in respect to two questions, of sin and of man's responsibility. Each of the dispensations may be regarded, notice the, how he terms that, as a new test of the natural man, and each ends in judgment, making his utter failure in every dispensation. It may be regarded as. Now, when the Bible says something, it comes right out and says it. You don't have to regard it as. But that's how this is. He's regarding it as. In other words, this is what we think. This is what we have conjured up. That it seems to be like this. But unlike replacement theology, you know, that's the other teaching, that, that the church replaces Israel. You know, the, the modern church is, is now of is, uh, the Israel of today. And uh, so they're also uh, blocking out all those things that Israel had to do because it replaces them. But dispensationalism says, no, Israel is Israel, but they have their segment, they have their promises, they have their, their track to follow, but we're over here following a different track. They both say the same thing in, in essence. They separate the two. They separate the two, separate the Bible. They believe, uh, just as, as Yahweh is in this age focusing his attention on the assembly, he will again focus on a future Israel in the millennium. Like I said, they believe it's going to be a physical thing in the millennium. But if we turn to Romans 9 and turn to Romans 11, we find that we, in this age, are grafted into Israel if we're not part of Israel. We're not replacing. We're not going on a separate track, a different pathway. We're merging we're merging, and that's the whole difference in what we teach here, is that we obey as Yahweh commanded from the beginning and make certain course corrections as he did when it comes to things like administration of temple worship and things like that, because Yahshua then took those things and he fulfilled those in his, 
his way and his sacrifice. So, you know, really we have the same, the same concept of the whole Bible going, except for a few tweaks. We don't sacrifice. We've got Yahshua's sacrifice. That doesn't do away with sacrifice. The sacrifice is there, but it's Yahshua's sacrifice. See, nothing really, nothing really in Yahweh's word is ever done away. He says what's before will be again. And so in Ezekiel, we find sacrifices, Zechariah, sacrifices again in the millennium. Not for us, I believe, but for others who at that point won't have the same Messiah because his role will change. He'll be Yahweh, our righteousness, instead of Yahweh, our salvation. But that's a whole other topic. And one set of standards is for one people, another for another, is basically what we're talking about in dispensationalism. Well, let's look at the, the claim that Yahweh treats mankind differently depending on the time frame. A belief in dispensation doesn't conflict with the institution of the tabernacle, the ritual law, the priesthood, and all of that, it simply says that those were given for a different time. In some specific ways, you know, that is true to a certain extent, of course, as we already talked about. But they go beyond rightly dividing. They go beyond peer dividing. Not rightly dividing, not making the right corrections, the right differences from old to new, but they completely chop it in two. That's for them. This is for us. That's what they say. But we have to rightly divide. They completely disavow the uh, statutes Yahweh gave and uh, basically start over in their own way. Turn with me if you got... I don't have this on screen. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 10, and we'll just start reading the first, uh, first verse. As you read, ask yourself whether there is a division in people and procedure from one testament to the other. As we read Paul here, see, see if you see a division. Or is he saying something else? about unity of faith between Israel and us. As a matter of fact, our subheading in the uh, RSB is unity, a call to unity, Yahweh's power and wisdom. Paul called to be an apostle, and I will get into the, the right chapter. 1 Corinthians, I knew that didn't sound right. 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized unto Moses in, in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat of the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Messiah. Here we have Yahshua there with Israel in the Old Testament. How about that? He's called the rock, capital R. And they drank of that rock spiritually. But with many of them, Yahweh was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not uh, lust after evil things 
and they all, as they also lusted, neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to play and, and uh, eat and drink and rose up to play. Then he says, let's not do what they did as far as their sinning goes. Don't murmur. All these things happened unto them, verse 11, for examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. That's pretty plain. I don't know how you can mistake that. They're written for our learning, for our instruction, our admonition on us whom the ends of the world are come. That's us. That's our day because we're not very far away. Well, one dispensationalist teacher explains his belief this way. One must distinguish between application and interpretation. So we have another, <laughs> another uh, twist on this teaching. We are expected to learn from every story in the Bible. We are not expected to duplicate the actions of those involved. Really. He goes on. For example, the Passover is a wonderful story of GD's salvation of the nation of Israel, we're moved to worship him because of his love, wisdom, and power demonstrated in the Passover events. None of us believe GD expects us to observe the literal Passover as did Israel. Really? Did he poll everybody? He says none of us expects to do that. Hmm. wonder where he gets his data. Hold on, freewheeler. Why did Yahshua keep Passover and command us to do it, command his disciples to do it, who did it, and then says we're going to do it again in the kingdom? Why, how, how does that fit into this man's justification, this man's reasoning, that there's a difference between application and acknowledgement? How, how does that fit in? Why did Joshua tell his disciples that he would no more eat it with them until he eats it again in the kingdom? So it shows him doing it. What dispensational exclusion are we to pin that on? Well, that's just one of hundreds of contradictions to this teaching. Hundreds. The man goes on. The difference between interpretation and application is where much of the misunderstanding lies. One must believe in dispensation and still believe the whole Bible. We are commanded to rightly divide it. To be scriptural, we must also let the Holy Spirit speak to our heart and make application as he or it chooses. The Holy Spirit has already done that. It's already done that. Spoken in the word. He's already spoken right here. I read it every day. He's spoken. It has spoken in the word. Why do we have to wait on the Holy Spirit when it's already there? It's kind of like these people who can't accept the will of Yahweh, so they throw some dice. Try to find out what they should do in a certain instance. And if they don't like the result, they throw it again and throw it again. Oh, how about three out of five? How about seven out of ten? How about until they get the answer they want. That's kind of how this, this looks to me. 
Anyway, that's the trademark passivity that dominates common attitudes today. Just sit back. Let Yahweh take care of it. I let go. I don't worry about being righteous or living the just life in the scriptures. I just let him pilot my life. I just switch over to autopilot and just coast right along. He'll do what he wants to do with my life. That's the attitude we see today. One morning I wake up a different righteous person and he is there changing everything. I did nothing. That's where it leads to. As ridiculous as that belief is. Is that how Yahweh works? Is Paul, did he never say he keeps himself under subjection lest he might be a castaway? Did he never teach us to strive for perfection or meaning completion? Strive or sit back and sleep? And so, a thousand scriptural passages commanding repentance, change, and following a different direction are just conveniently thrown out because we're in a different dispensation. It's up to Yahweh to change me. Nothing needed on my part. My life is on autopilot And Yahweh is the driver, making all the right moves, and I just sit back and enjoy. Wow, sounds great, but it doesn't work. (laughs) That's why this world is in the problems we're in. People are not taking control of their lives. Spiritualism is being snuffed right out of our culture. The Bible is being taken right out. People aren't living it anymore. That's why we have these problems. That's why we have so many murders every day, murders everywhere. It's why we have trouble with children all the time, difficulties, because they're not being taught. They weren't, they're not being taught like, you know, 50 years ago, the righteous ways of Yahweh, where you just don't do those things because you just don't do them. There's so many things wrong with our culture because the Bible has been pushed out of it. And so we're reaping the consequences, and that's prophesied too. Philippians 2.12, Wherefore, my brethren, as you have always obeyed, always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now so much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. No autopilot. Work out your own salvation. Take charge of your spiritual life. Become active in what you do for Yahweh. Learn his word. You know, that that reflects back on, uh, I think we've mentioned this before, that Israel was a people of doing. They didn't sit back. They were doing. They were active. They were constantly. Yahweh has them doing things to become a part, actively a part of their religious worship. They had to do things. He's still doing that. Dispensationalism throws all that out. There's no working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's changed obedience into sloth, inaction. What about Luke 13, 24, where Yahshua says, strive to enter in at the straight gate, the narrow gate. You got to squeeze by. One of the first feasts we kept as an organization down south here, and there was a a cave. Everybody want to go to the cave. I didn't go, but some did. And uh, there, was a, <laughs> there was a passageway at the beginning. I mean, it was, they say, I didn't go down, so I don't know, but so narrow that one fellow got stuck in it. 
And they were really concerned about him. He couldn't get out. There's the straight gate when you can barely squeeze through because it's not easy. It's not wide. It's not a super lane highway. It's very narrow. It takes effort. Our worship takes effort. Our lives take effort for Yahweh. We have to constantly course correct when we go through life. Constantly guiding others, our children, grandchildren, showing them. Strive to enter the straight gate. I say you will seek to enter in, and you're not going to be able to if you haven't striven to enter that gate, Yasha said. And what about rightly dividing? Does that mean dividing the the Bible up with itself? This is in 2 Timothy 2.15, and it's the Greek orthotomio, and explains by, by vines as handling aright what is intended here is not dividing Scripture from Scripture, but teaching Scripture accurately. Dispensationalism is dividing Scripture from Scripture. It says its use in the Septuagint means righteous traces out blameless paths. Here's the big issue. It plays, dispensationalism plays on the great man-made division between Old and New Testament, between Old Covenant, New Covenant. Separate them out as mutually exclusive when they're not. They, they come together beautifully. They beautifully tie together, and Paul explains how that works. We're grafted into a, that promise. Not an entirely different one, a spiritual one as opposed to a physical one. No, it's a spiritual promise for everybody. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, the Old Testament speaks of Yahshua as the rock. They understood that there was a rock. What did that mean to them? I'm sure they had an inkling of Yahshua's coming. But the splitting and dividing doesn't stop there. To be able to maintain the distinction between the church, quote-unquote, and the Jews, they split Yahshua's second coming into two phases— And this is where the rapture thing comes in. And this is where uh, they got off at this special time in history when they were starting to come up with these doctrines. First, Yahshua comes invisible, coming to secretly, secretly rapture away the assembly. And second, a visible coming seven years later to get Israel to physically go to their, their, their promise. See where that comes from? They establish a Jewish kingdom in the millennium. That's why he comes in two stages. First for his people, then for the Jews. That's what this teaching says. It's driven by racial prejudice, and that's all you can say. That we're still better in the New Testament than they were. That's really what it's all about. They're not quite up to snuff. The church gets the better promises. The Jews are still back there in the physical land. And that's all they get. Romans 10.12 says that there's no difference between Jew and Greek, male and female. We're all one in Messiah. We're all one. There's no difference. We can't separate them from us. It doesn't matter for one thing. We get this a lot. We got it this last week. 
Some guy was making some kind of special racial division there. Um, I've forgotten what it was now. Maybe Lucas remembers, but uh, it didn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're all one in Messiah. Paul said so. Time to go to the source to check the videotape. Let's consult the official record on this score and see, first off, what Yahshua himself taught. Throughout the teachings of Yahshua, the Messiah's kingdom is composed not of two separate peoples, Israel and and, uh, the assembly, but of one people, the new Israel, you might say, consisting of believing, Jews and Gentiles both. We talked about that in the book of Acts that we're studying in Bible study, how they come together. They come together, and they had a hard time. I admit, there was some prejudice going on the other side, too, because in the book of Acts, they hated what Paul was teaching. They thought you had to be circumcised, become Jews again, before you could even accept his teachings. There was some problems on the other side, too. They were holding to their nationalism. Paul says we're grafted into the Israelite promise, Romans 9 11. No separation. No separate promises. To his disciples, Yahshua said in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Note that the promise of the kingdom, the messianic kingdom, is going to a little flock, little flock of true Israel consisting of all those who accept it and follow Yahshua the Messiah. The prophets speak of Israel as Yahweh's flock or sheep. You can find that in Isaiah 40, 11, Jeremiah 31, 10, Ezekiel 34, 12, and on. By calling his disciples the little flock, what is he doing? What is he teaching us? What does he say to whom Yahweh was giving the kingdom? He's clearly identifying his followers, his disciples, as a remnant of Israel, not a replacement of Israel. See? A remnant of Israel, a little flock. They come from Israel. They're not divided off from Israel, as the dispensationalists would say. Not distinguished from Israel. Moreover, by commissioning his apostles to make disciples of all nations, you know, Matthew 28, 19, Yahshua shows that the prophetic mission of national Israel was being fulfilled by the assembly, which consists of disciples from all nations. Israel continues to exist, not apart from, but as part of the assembly. Even in terminology, we see a unity between Israel and the assembly. Peter applies it to the assembly. He he, he talks about the Old Testament titles that designate Israel in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Think of all the different Old Testament terms that are found in the New Testament. Because there's a tie there. There's a link there. There's not a division there. There's carry over from one to the other. Yahweh's own people, that you may be declared the, declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
This description of uh, the assembly is a composite of at least two Old Testament passages. Exodus 19.6 and Isaiah 43.20-22, which characterizes Yahweh's people. No difference in that. We can go from the other end as well, work from the, their end of it and come into the new covenant from the Old Testament perspective and come up with the same conclusion. Peter shows that the chosen people are no longer exclusively ethnic Israelites, but includes Gentile believers as well. So that the new Israel fulfills the promises made to the old Israel, but it's still Israel. Like Joshua and Peter, Paul also viewed the assembly as part of one people, part of one spiritual nation. Speaking to the Jews gathered in the synagogue at Antioch, Paul said in Acts 13, 32, and 33, we bring you the good news that what Yahweh promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us by their children by raising Yahshua. By raising Yahshua, he fulfilled his promise to Israel. So, they knew. They knew that there was a Savior somewhere coming, and they, they expected it. They expected it in the New Testament. They thought it was here. They thought he was going to come and establish the kingdom. All this that they were pumped up to accept and, and wait for didn't happen, so they rejected Joshua, and from that became their own division. He's not the one. We're looking for the real Messiah to come. When they don't realize he already came, but he didn't fit their plan. He's got a different time schedule. In his epistle to the Galatians, Paul uses the phrase, the Israel of Yahweh, to include converted Gentiles. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of Yahweh, Galatians 6, NIV. Well, clearly, in Galatians 3, 28, we find that no distinction between Israel and those who are grafted in. There's no separate dispensation for those two groups. They're all one. Paul teaches repeatedly the integration of Gentiles into Israel as heirs of the promise as well. You follow my word. You accept my covenant obedience to what I've given you can be part of Israel as well. Ephesians 2, 11. I want to read that. I think it's very significant because uh, of Yahweh's promises there. Starting with verse 11. Wherefore, remember that you being in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Messiah, but being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without Elohim in the world. See how he ties it all together there? The Israel of promise. But now in Messiah, Yahshua, you who sometimes were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Messiah. He brings us up into that family of Israel. For he is our 
peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's not the ten. That's added laws to separate the Jew from Gentile. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto Elohim in one body by the stake, having slain the enmity thereof. And there's no enmity in Yahweh's law. He says that the law is holy, just, and good. Can't talk about enmity here and apply it to Yahweh's royal law. There is no enmity there. But the enmity was brought on by the division that they made it by their annual, but their, by their uh, actual deliberate laws made to separate. Touch not, touch not, taste not, handle not. Remember? You, 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 you make people slaves to your, uh, to your added ordinances, Yahshua told the Pharisees. You make them slaves, but you forget the weightier matters. You don't get the heart change that must come with it. And he might reconcile both unto Elohim in one body, by the stake, having slain the enmity thereof. Both parties, both sides in one body. How does dispensationalism answer that? It doesn't. They'll probably just go on to something else. You know, if you ever get in an argument with somebody, I should say argument, but a debate, we aren't really supposed to argue the word, but you get in a debate, um, what they'll usually do is ignore this and say, look over here, look over here. But they never answer your point. Look over here. And they throw another thing at you and another thing. And when you're all done, you haven't proved anything. You haven't gone anywhere with it. And they don't want to go anywhere with it because they don't have an answer. It's usually how it goes. And came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were close. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of Elohim. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Same foundation. Prophets is Old Testament, brethren. Apostles, New Testament. Yahshua himself being the cement. I added that. He's actually the chief cornerstone, but he ties it all together. You ever seen a cornerstone? I think uh, Pennsylvania is called the Keystone State because in their graphic there, they got the stone right there at the top holding it all together. This is what Yahshua was. He holds it all together. In whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the master. In whom you also are builded together for a habitation of Elohim through the Spirit. There you have it. Laid it all out. Thank you, Paul. You really explained it. Now I understand it. Yahweh promises that Israel will have a hope also in the resurrection. Not in the establishment of a Jewish kingdom, but rather in forgiveness of sins granted through the Messiah so that they can be part of Yahweh's kingdom. In his epistle to the Galatians, Paul uses the phrase, the Israel of Yahweh. He reaches repeatedly the 
or teaches the uh, integration of Gentiles into Israel. You find it over and over in the scriptures. When you look at the scriptures and really look at them and really delve into the word, you see the cement holding everything together. He clearly explains that the Gentiles, who at one time were outside the promise, now can be part of the promise. In the New Jerusalem are inscribed both the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the names of the 12 apostles. Are you aware of that? How can you say they're separate? The former, the 12 tribes, are on the 12 gates that go into the city. You go into the city through one of the tribes. And the latter, the 12 apostles, are in the 12 foundations of that city. The assembly today and Israel share not only the same salvation, but also the same ultimate glorification and restoration when Yahweh brings his his kingdom to this earth. There'll be one group in that kingdom made up of Jews, Christians, and all those who have come to Yahweh as he commands. Sure, there's going to be Christians and Gentiles. They're all good. Anyone who follows the truth, anyone who takes hold of the covenant can be in that kingdom. But they have to do that. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of Yahweh and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of Elohim may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. No matter what end you come from, no matter what denomination you come from, if you adhere to Yahweh's word and change to obedience, there you have it. There's the promise right there waiting you. But you have to change. You can't keep on going in falsity. Nothing here about two groups. Nothing here about two different Bibles. Nothing here about two different rewards. All work together, not at cross purposes. So, what's the message? We've got to dispense with dispense, dispensationalism. That's what it is. That's all I can tell you. Hallelujah. Yahweh bless you.